cliffcentral.com. South African history is um, absolutely fascinating. And the more we revise and discover and, and dig up, the more interesting it seems to get. And as we also learn from history, nothing is ever as it seems in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And someone who's made an enormous contribution to this is my guest for this morning. His name is John Laband, and his book is called The Boer Invasion of the Zulu Kingdom. Um, which is a really, really interesting story. And we're going to hear it not only from the side that we're used to hearing about it from, but also now from the Zulu side. And John has been uh, working tirelessly to bring us this version. So thank you very much for your oh, contribution to our history. It's absolutely lovely. And, and let's just start off with what people think they know about things like Blood River. Ah, yes. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of a, a nation-building myth, in fact, for, for the Afrikaner people. It's, it's um, got proving that God's on their side, this great victory against overwhelming odds. It sort of represents their right, in fact, to rule the black people of the interior of South Africa. So that is the long-standing myth. Um, the Zulu side is more complex because Shaga is the great founder of the kingdom. And for many Zulus, for many t- for a long time, Dingaan wrecked it all. He's the guy who got defeated, who, you know, he's ru- the, ruined the, the whole he's thing. He's the Brutus or Cassius of the yeah, Julius Caesar the, that is Shaka. The, the, this is right. So, so on the other hand, now um, there's much more of a movement when you're thinking of resistance to colonialism and so on, that, that in fact, Dingaan is this kind of hero, in fact, who stood up to this invasion. So, so there's a kind of a real differentiation in, in the Zulu side of way of looking at things about this. So, so is, that a, is that a fault or is that just what happens with history, is that it becomes it, it's, propagandized? It's, it's, it's just, just what happens and it's, and it's how people see history with different eyes over a long period. I mean, so you've got a change in the Zulu position or in many ways it became politicized where in Carter, who espoused Shaka, he is a great founder, the, the ANC put more emphasis on Dingaan just almost originally as a as a counterbalance to um, Inkata sort of taking Shaka as their own. Yeah, it's it's just amazing. Uh, you know, I was speaking to a guest just a little while ago about how history is so useful to the ideologues. And, oh, absolutely. And it's hard, it's hard to, you know, what is truth? How do you know as a historian th- that you're, you're dealing with something that's true when your sources are limited? Well, um, sometimes they're non-existent. You have yeah. to dig up the primary sources yeah. yourself. Yeah. Well, you, you don't really. And, and as an historian, you know you're trying your best with what evidence you have. But you know it's your vision of it. It's your understanding of it. I mean, two historians can look at the same document and see it with different eyes mm. or emphasize different elements of it. I mean, early on in my career when I was beginning to look at the Zulu side of things, you realize that the information was there say in the British documents, just other historians had filtered Ignored. it out and only looked to the British side of things. So so it's how you yeah, it's what you're what you're searching for in many ways. And so you have to have a very thick skin. Yeah. As a historian because you're oh, going to you be do. criticized oh, mercilessly. You, oh you do. I mean you're criticized I mean already for this book I know um, there's been criticism from people, you know uh, well how dare you undo the great myth. Um yeah. the, the Zulu side of things there's this you're a white guy. What are you doing talking for talking for us? Um, mm-hmm. You know, so one's always running into trouble of one sort or another. You don't you don't please everybody. You can't possibly. Well, Simon Montefiore just told me if he could go back into history, mm-hmm. the one person he'd like to meet was Shaka. Ah. And I think 
there are a lot of us who who would. I I remember at primary school, I was in KwaZulu-Natal mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. primary school, mm-hmm. and we had a significant part of the syllabus dedicated mm-hmm. to Zulu history, yeah. which was quite good because, quite good. Yeah. Yeah. you know, this was during apartheid, yeah. really. I mean, yeah. I was in primary school in the in the late 80s. Yeah. So, right. But it, it engendered in me yeah. this absolute fascination, and I don't think it's saying too much to say that Shaka mm-hmm. was a kind of hero to me as a kid. Yeah. I dressed up as Shaka. We went to this little uh, fake Zulu village they'd built with they showed yeah. us how they used to yeah, live. Shaka land or whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, was, it was called Pezulu or something. Oh, yeah. And I remember, oh, near, so, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's yeah, probably yeah. one of a yeah. number of them. Yeah, yeah. But I remember learning about the Iqwa yeah. and I learned I'd, all about the formations of the bullhorns. And, all that, and this yeah. was, to me as a kid, yeah. this was military history of yeah, the highest yeah. order. But, you know, the irony is we actually know nothing really about Shaka. We have no idea what he looked like. No. You know, um, I mean, his his antecedents we're not sure about. I mean, so there again, Shaka becomes a kind of myth as well. You know, well, we know we we, we at least know where Sezanga Kona is buried, I suppose, yeah, but we, we don't even know where Shaka is. Well, no, he's Stanga somewhere. Stanga, but not Stanga, sure, yes. Right? Well, I mean, it's it's near the what used to be the magistrate's office anyway. But it's so we've got the memorial, which is sort of sort of where he's supposed to be, but. But no one's digging no, around no, no, trying no, to no, find it. Dig that one up. No, no. So, John, mm-hmm. um, let's start with Dingan because mm-hmm. if we could, if we could begin somewhere, it'll mm-hmm. it'll give us a, yeah. a place to. Re- I want right. to get into some of the meat on the bones sure. here. So, Dingan, I mean, we've always had this portrayal of him as being the um, the, the traitor yeah. to to his uh, brother, half brother. Yeah, um, that he was fat. Mm-hmm. That he was. Not particularly well equipped, that he was lazy, mm-hmm. that he was also the one who murdered uh, Petra Tief mm-hmm. and his men at Ungungundlovu mm-hmm. yeah. upon the hill of Kwamatiwan, yeah. uh, called them a bunch of wizards, and yeah. turned mm-hmm. against the treaty which he'd signed, which mm-hmm. is preserved in the Church of the Vow in Maritzburg, mm-hmm. and then went on to lead them into all kinds of real mm-hmm. loss, defeat, mm-hmm. uh, tyranny, mm-hmm. and ended up. In the bushes, mm. in a place that's literally named the bush, yeah, yeah, and died in some ignominious fashion. That's right. I mean, that's. But you know, I think there again, I mean, that's one way of looking at him. Another way of saying here is a highly ambitious and successful prince, whose whose half brother was becoming a real danger. He seized the throne with a well formulated conspiracy. Um, and proceeded to win over the army that is returning up from from fighting Shotrangani, um, and consolidating the kingdom. And you know, if it hadn't been for the invasion of the Boers, he'd have probably been a successful Zulu king. I mean, if Shark had been faced with those thousand wagons coming over, coming over the Drakensberg and all the rest of it. Would he have done any better? Same military system, same organization. It's a, it's a moot point. So, so Dingan is someone who in Zulu terms was a firm king, a successful king, um, someone to be feared, which kings were supposed to be feared and being confronted by this invasion decided to deal with it and to deal with it in his own lights as best he could. So, you know, it's, there's nothing like failure to turn you into a fat, useless, cowardly guy, you know, whereas on the other hand, if he'd been successful, he'd have been seen very differently. So, so it's, it's. Well, I mean, again, the, the parallels here with figures like 
Brutus and Cassius yeah, are, yeah. are just, I mean, well, extraordinary. Yeah. It's almost as if there's an ongoing human story that we yeah. can't get away from. Yeah, well, sure. sure. I mean, and brother up, turning on brother, brother yeah. you know. Well, I mean, it's, I mean, all the Zulu kings um, fought contested um, successions. I mean, even the latest king we yeah. have. I mean, all right, now, now you do it in court. Then you did it by 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 killing the whole lot. Hook and crook. <laughs> yeah. So, all right, what part of the story? I'm I'm fascinated. I happen to be a what is it? Four greats grandson of Petri Tief. Oh, really? Which yeah. people don't know because they assume that you must speak Afrikaans. Yeah, yeah. His daughter Deborah Retief is buried in our family graveyard. Goodness, okay, that's and I can yeah. I can go through the generations that yeah. succeed, though they're yeah. much less. Mm-hmm. Storied. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never been to mm-hmm. the, the, the site at Kwamati one, but I believe that mm-hmm. that whole area is mm-hmm. just absolutely chock full of all kinds of history that, yeah. that we still have to discover. And mm-hmm. so much of this, and yeah. when you come in and be, and you're, you're being particularly helpful here, mm-hmm. is, is the oral traditions mm-hmm. which are being kept alive mm-hmm. by elders in villages mm-hmm. all over Kwazulu mm-hmm. Natal. Mm-hmm. These are sources which haven't been taken seriously yeah. up to now. Yeah. And add much more color mm. to these stories. I mean, let's just go into Dingan just after the, the, his, his, his succeed, succeeding Shaka. Yeah. And what happened there? Yeah. You said this army was coming up from the south. Yes, which well, well, yeah, well from, from the north. But, yeah, tell yeah, me, tell yeah. me how it all began. Yeah, well, I mean, Shaka, Shaka had faced a number of assassination attempts already, in fact, a number which had failed. Um, he had sent, Exhibitions, ex- expeditions off, off to the Cape, diplomatic ones, attempting to consolidate the kingdom and get recognition like that. That had failed. And it seems that he sent the army up north again very quickly to get it out of the way while he tried to consolidate his position at home and sent the major princes with it. Now, the feeling is there, well, having sent the princes off, what was he intending to do with them, hoping they'd never come back? when they went off to fight Shoshangani and the Gaza people near Delagoa Bay. But what happened, the princes absconded when the army was halfway there, came back, and with Nkabai, the sister of um, Sinzanga Corner, who had put Shaka on his throne, um, she had decided Shaka was becoming too much of a problem, so she aided and abetted Dingan and his brothers in this in this assassination attempt. So, so once that's all done, um, it's consolidated. The army comes back. The army is persuaded that the new king has done a good thing. The first thing the king does after that is kill almost all the rest of his brothers, about thirteen or so of them. Keeps um, Pande alive. He kept Pande alive. Um, he kept about one other alive too. So there are about two brothers were left alive, but the rest were eliminated, like. The Ottoman sultans, who the right. first thing they did coming to the throne was... was, was or the English was, in the was, Wars of the Roses. Yeah, you, you, you strangle all... You kill Ken, all the Henry VIII did you this. Camp, oh. You kill the opposition, sure, that's the, that's the thing. So once he's there, right, so he's set off. Now he's a successful king. He's setting military expeditions off into the Highfield to fight in Zilikazi and people like that. He is acting like now a good Zulu king, exactly in the footsteps of his brother. And interestingly enough, establishes a permanent capital. Yeah. Which Shaka had never done. Well, Shaka kept on moving his, his mm. capitals and getting closer and closer to that 
extraneous element, those um, Port Natal settlers who arrive, they arrive there with weapons, they arrive there with a whole another world that, that's part of the whole game now. And, and Dingaan starts playing this. I mean, Dingaan is now using them as mercenaries. He is beginning to collect firearms. Um, so Dingaan is getting into the colonial world. He is sending off um, diplomatic missions to the Cape as well to try and make for better relations. So he is also getting into the whole sort of nexus of this new kind of world where the colonial element is absolutely beginning to impinge on your kingdom and you're beginning to react to it. Um, that's all very well dealing with Port Natal traders who every now and again you attack them, you scare them off their settlement, you, you know, you control them, you, you go and attack Delagoa Bay and beat up the, the Portuguese, you know. Yeah. I mean, so he's very much acting like a re, like a good Zulu monarch until <laughs> the guys come over, come over the Drakensberg with Petrachief and then this is a whole new ball game entirely. So did they meet as sincere equals when they decided that they were going to apportion land to each other and there was a deal on men and on arms and on cattle, or was it a complete farce? Dingan had already allocated all the land he allocated to Peter Tief to Captain Gardner, the missionary. <laughs> it, it already was. Spoken for. It was already spoken for. It was already allocated. Um, and it was a sizable piece of land. Yeah, well, it's... it's between the Tugela and the... And, and, and the, the Mzumkula. I mean, basically Mzumkula. sort of, you know, so sort of right down there. So, yeah, so the land... I'm only looking because I want to make a land claim at some right. point. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to use the document. Right. So, so, already, so already the land is bespoken for, if you like. Right. And, and when Petra Tief arrives... Um, he breaks all Zulu etiquette. He doesn't wait for the king to call for him. He doesn't wait for invitations. He pitches up. This is in November of, of the year before the war actually No begins. deference shown. No proper deference shown. Um, and straight away, negotiations mixed with threats. Look what we have done to Mazila Kazi. Look at us. God's on our side. You know, look what happens to bad, bad kings who don't play play the game according to our rules. And I think what one's got to remember right throughout this, the the trekkers had were all experienced in the Eastern Cape frontier. That's in a way where it all begins. Right. We have now had <clears throat> eighty years of warfare, more well, about six sixty at this stage, of warfare against the Amantrosa. Mm-hmm. You know, so I mean, this is where you've grown up. You've just lived through the Sixth Cape Frontier War. And treaties are part of that game. You begin treaty systems and all the rest of it. But basically, it's all an effort to get the land you want, to control the people you're fighting against, to use their labor as best you can. I mean, so all of this is already absolutely set. I mean, the the trekkers knew how to deal with Africans. They've been doing it for all this period on, on the Cape Eastern Frontier. And so they move into Zululand with exactly this same way of thinking about it. And the Zulu king also has a good eye. He knows perfectly well what's been happening on the Eastern Cape frontier. He also knows what's been happening against Indabeli up on the high field. So mm-hmm. he knows these guys are really dangerous. He knows that they have firearms to a number which he certainly has nothing like, that, that they're great fighters. 
So this is a mortal kind of threat, you know. And when they come over the mountain straight away into his territory, without asking his permission, start um, collecting um, grain and other foodstuffs from from his people as if they had conquered them already. I mean, so this is the whole situation when Petritif actually arrives to begin negotiating. So this guy, he is trouble, you know, from, from a Zulu perspective. And, mm. and I mean, even if Petritif is saying, right, well, we'd like to half your kingdom, shall we say, we'd negotiate f- for it, the warnings are already there. And in his own um, justifications to the Eastern Cape newspapers, because he's a great newspaper correspondent saying what he's doing and where he's going and what it's about, is, yeah, we're going to be peaceful, but don't let them start any trouble because we will take up arms if they do. So, you know, it's it's um, this is negotiation with um, threat. It's like Putin <laughs> arriving saying, okay, we would like the Donbass free, please, you know, yeah. but don't, don't say no. And of course, <laughs> you know, the Zulu are, are a different kettle of fish to yeah. the, the, the Klasa. There's yeah. a very different kind of yeah. much, outlook. Much more centralized, much more, much, much more of a centralized, a real empire. coherent monarchy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Where the Klasa were much more. Disbritain. Disbritain, yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, so. okay, so then these these negotiations are going to take pay, yeah. place under bad faith yeah. from both sides. Yeah. So it's yes, doomed, both sides it's indeed, doomed yeah. from the start. Absolutely. Um, yeah. The story that we all know mm. is that they are placated, the, mm. the, 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 the trekkers. They're told, yeah. here we are, Dingan supposedly signs the, 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 the Troktat, which yeah. was yeah. found much later yeah. um, in his saddlebag conveniently. Yeah. So they say. Um, exactly. <laughs> and and Dingan then orders their death. Yeah. And this is this is not unlike any monarch might no. do yeah. to the most immediate threat. Well, we, we've to all his watched Game position. of Thrones. We've right. seen what happens right. at banquets. Right. <laughs> banquets. So they all eat very merrily. There's yeah. dancing and yeah. singing, and then yeah. suddenly yeah. a whole bunch of assegais come yeah. up. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But but also, I mean, the the Boers when they arrive. Um, they give an exhibition of military prowess, right? They're firing blanks, but they're galloping around. The whole of Imgunklovo is covered, you know, is, is, is suffused with, with gunpowder. I mean, this already is a visible threat as such. Um, and they break all kinds of taboos. I mean, it's, it's, they're offered the best kind of accommodation in the Akanda, in the military homestead. No, they're not going to live in huts. They're going to, they're going to camp outside and they happen to camp outside on a, Royal grave, you know, which, which is, which is, which is not, <laughs> not really appreciated yeah. either. They're offered food. They say, no, we're going off hunting. So they don't want our food. Um, they, they go peeking around the Isigotl or the king's sort of harem, which nobody does not on allowed. pain of death. So what's that about? They start moving around it at night, um, looking off for their strayed horses. So they say, but then what are they actually doing? Are they thinking of an attack? Are they measuring things up? Or no, if you're Dengan, you're paranoid. And, and, you know, this is what wizards – I mean, when he says kill the wizards, it's because this is what wizards do. Wizards move around at night checking out their potential victims. And so the Boers are going on like bad people with, you know, yeah. But there are dead bodies, so we know that he's not uh, <laughs> he's not exactly playing the game either. No, he's certainly not playing and the game. And this is now – Full all-out war, and mm. interesting. After their murder, he moves quite quickly. Dengar. Oh, it's. I mean, it, in fact, the operation is it's boom boom together. And look, when because he, he realizes the rest of the yeah, party are out out there. And any Zulu king, when you execute an enemy, um, 
or execute one of your top people because what the Zulu kings would do regularly, they would kill a top chief or two just to show who was boss. Mm. You would then go off and eradicate their entire family and, and everything around them. So Extirpation. And so what this is, it's on a larger scale than usual, but it's you kill you kill the chief and the army goes straight out to wipe out the rest of the, the extended family. So it's a it's a typical Zulu operation. And they they're really caught with their pants down because And, and they were and and they were. I mean so it's were, remarkable anyone survived yeah, that first wave of attacks. Absolutely. Well again, those who'd had enough sense to lager or semi lager were fine. Those who were scattered along the river banks, they had bad luck. But but again it was actually a setback for the Zulu because here it is, they'd arrived totally by surprise, um, caught caught the, the encampment encampments completely unprepared, and yet they hadn't won. They were actually fought off. They escaped with they retired with a fair amount of cattle, but they hadn't carried out the operation completely. So so that is Another shock, if you like, for the Zulu king. It's the operation is not a success. And this is where the Shaka fans would say, well, under his leadership, they might have done better. Well, you see, <laughs> Shaka, certainly by the late stage of his life, he never went into battle himself. His generals did it. His generals were going to fight the Amampondo or the, or the, or the Swazi or whoever, whoever. So Dingan was simply giving his best generals. It was now in command of his absolute best guys and Zorbo and Lel and people like that. So, so now he's giving it the, the full show, if you like. Mm. And this failure is something that is really, really alarming, in fact. Um, so what, so what does is this the next knock step their self-confidence? Does this well, put them on the back foot? It puts them on the back foot and what to do next. And... It's really, it's the Boers who make the next move when they decide, when they pull themselves together and then raid towards Mgungunklovo, that, that, that commando, Leledba Asen and Van Porthita. Um, so that is the next move. And the Zulu then respond to that and they respond successfully. It's a battle they win completely at Eleni. I mean, mm-hmm. the Boers are completely beaten up and retreat and basically flee, you know, pursued by the Zulus. I mean, that that's a loser. And at the same time, at Port Natal, where the Boers have made an alliance with the hunter traders at Port Natal, they've galvanized themselves. They've put together an army, mainly of African retainers, uh, retainers and levies. I mean, it's mainly an African army, though about 500 or so of them have got firearms of one sort or another. They invade Zululand. And at the Battle of the Tugela, near Ndondagazuka, they get completely wiped out. I mean, and, and Port Natal itself is attacked and burnt, and the, the survivors, you know, take, take refuge on a ship in the bay. So, I mean, so here are two Zulu big victories, boom, boom. So You would now, think this would buy them up for So now, So now, now they are buoyed up. So, <laughs> now, so now from the Zulu point of view, by, by April or so, they're, they're really pretty much in charge. And... The Boers are now on the defensive. They're pulled back. They're going into their lagers and all the rest of it. And the next step is, as the Boers, what do we do? They're actually, as I say, marking time. And the Zulu then make the next initiative. We're going to finish these guys and <coughs> and hit them at at at, at Fechla, you know, in, in August. And and that is their first attack on a well-fortified lager with the game pits and all the rest of it. Um, 
and they attack it again and again, and that is the real game changer. So here's the full Zulu army, but attacking this all-round defensive laggard position. But still, I mean, the numbers are extraordinary. Well, you know, I think one mustn't overdo the numbers because, you know, at Fechla, the Boers were under three, well, they were about 200 at most, um, and the Zulu army is perhaps five or 6,000 at most. The numbers are much smaller than we like to think, that that when you're fighting in Donegazuka, the numbers there were also about no, five, 7,000. It's still 7, one 000. to 10. Is, is it's it's one to 10, but one to 10 in a siege situation um, mm, is is in fact really you know quite quite another story altogether and and the point about lagers as well is that you can outnumber fifty to one, but if the lager length is shall we say two hundred yards, that is only two hundred yards of of the ten thousand and the yeah. rest are are behind you know so so in other words you're concentrating against only those numbers that actually face the lager and all the other huge numbers are simply in the rear. Okay, but then that's a strategy which yeah. the Zulu weren't prepared for. No, no, indeed not. I mean, they try to surround these lagers. They try and hit it at different places. And they would have known what um, Nsilikazi had, had done at, at, at Ferkorp, where, again, you're looking for – you're looking basically – Looking well, you're looking for a flank to turn. Essentially, mm. you're you're looking to outmaneuver them to surround them, you know. And and this you couldn't do. So you try here, you try there, you try to the left, try to the right. So do you think? Yeah, th- that that battle was then the turning point. That that was the turning point because the Zulu now thought, okay, well, what do we do in this sort of situation? When we have caught them in the open, as they did at Heleni and at at the Battle of the White of of Together. of the Tugela, um that's fine. But now, what do we do? As far as the Boers are concerned, this is, they've always known that lagers are from, from the wars on the, on the Cape Eastern frontier. They've known this is the way to do it. But now this absolutely is reiterated. So if we go in and attack and we lager, we are going to win anything like this. And for the Zulu position is, how do we cope with it? Mm. And so Blood River, in a way, is a kind of, Desperate measure by the Zulu because here, here is this large commander under Pretorius moving in with all its wagons, um, and they're going to lager. And the Zulu know that this is the situation, but all they can do is put together the biggest army they've put together by this stage, 12,000, 15,000, and try and attack it and do the best they can, knowing they would take heavy casualties, but hoping that weight of numbers and sheer tenacity they would manage to break through somewhere or other because with the lagers like a British infantry square or something, yeah. you break it and you have well, an the entry Roman, the Roman way of doing the same and, yeah. and once you break this formation you know you've you won the thing so so Blood River was this this battle which the Boers really thought they should and should and would win and the one the Zulus thought they must win but doubted in many ways that they could. What time did it take place of day? It it started right in the early morning. I mean, in fact, before daylight, actually. The the, the Zulu left wing took up position, crossed the river and took up position in the early morning um, before before light finally broke. And, you know, there they were positioned. But the lark was very cleverly positioned with uh, the river on the one side and a dong on the other. So the perimeter 
was very narrow, in fact, so, so that the Zulu army could only really attack the northwest corner. And that meant that, as they I say, concentrated they concentrated. And, and, you know, um, when, when the next Zulu wave came, I mean, supporting the, the first lot who lost out, I mean, all they're doing is adding more people behind mm. those that were already there. And you have the Zulu situation of those behind pushing forward and those, those in front pushing back. And death you, trap. You, death trap, absolutely, yeah. So it, it worked extremely successfully. And and what were those final numbers? You said, what, 15,000, 12,000, 15,000? 15,000 attacks, yeah. The Lager, again, one of these interesting things we forget, there were perhaps, what, about 470 white guys in the Lager, but there were then… Is that just men or…? Just, just men. It, yeah. Th- th- this was unlike, say, Fehrkorp or Fehla, where there were women and children. This was just men. This was just a mobile commander out to Where were the women? women. And they, they, they were left at the various other big lagers to the rear. Okay. Um, so, so there they were, secure, with, with men to guard them, with, with um, you know, strongly fortified because lagers. Because, again, the so myth are, is that you've got the wives… Loading the guns behind yeah. the husband and the children taking shots yeah. when the well, husband that, that, needed that, a break. Well, <laughs> well that, 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 that is Fechkorp, all right. But, right. And then Fechla as well, but, but, not, but not this one. The people there who were helping loading were, again, the people who always get written out of the story. It's the, it's the um, Achtereyes who are there, um, who, are, who are following the, the horsemen. I mean, they're the guys, they're the wagon drivers. Um, You've, and you've also got this contingent from Port Natal of about 60 armed black, of uh, 60, 60 armed Africans from Port Natal as well. So, so on top of the 470 or so white guys, you've got someone like 300 black guys in that lager who are, some of them are firing, others are holding the horses and cattle, mm. others are loading, et cetera, et cetera. So. Well, it's like whenever we talk about. Mm. Cressy or Agincourt yeah, or anything yeah, else. We, yeah. we, we mentioned the king and a few noblemen and noblemen everyone and else. And all, all the peasants are there, forget and, it. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, all the, yeah. you know, all support staff. Yeah. Well, <laughs> the operations that's right. people. That's right. And yeah. And so, so they, they actually played and they always get written out the story, a real positive part in this battle. And of course, this is typical of any colonial situation that many blacks are actually fighting against other right. blacks. But, but the Zulu, but the Zulu kingdom is, is their enemy, you know, yeah. um, you know, so. And there were many people who were quite disenchanted with the disenchanted, Zulu who, who were black and all over South Africa. There were refugees, et cetera, sure. et cetera. There, yeah. So. I mean, Shaka didn't exactly make friends with everyone. No, any, anything but. This is mm-hmm. why the oral, oral memory of Shaka is so mixed, you know, Mr. Nice and, and Monster Horrible, you know, I mean, it's, right. it's, you get that from the Zulu side, yeah. And the truth's probably yeah. somewhere in between. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So, but, all right. After Blood River, which is this a truly yeah. phenomenal victory, yeah, it is absolutely, and yeah. and absolutely deserves its place in history. I like yeah. that you've also given us the Zulu name for it, Nkome. Yeah, well, um, that's the name of the river. Yeah, yeah, sure. But yeah. but for the Zulu people, this is yeah. also a massive turning point oh, it because is, now yeah. suddenly mm-hmm. the uh, they've thrown everything they could yeah. at this, and it didn't work. Yeah, but you know, it's not the end of the kingdom because I mean, this is it's <laughs> Zulu kings like or Mstilikazu, anyone else, these kingdoms were mobile. Yes. Um, you know, it wasn't so much the land, it was the people and cattle. And kings, if they're defeated, could move off. And Dingan's response to this, okay, I'm moving out of this area and I'm going to reconsolidate myself North. in northern Zululand or in Swaziland. And what's so often forgotten, the Boers actually continue after Blood River. They, right, they burn him Clover and all the rest of it. Those, um, there's other Amakanda in, in the Amakosini, but 
They then move on to the White and Falozi, and down they go, and they're ambushed in the Battle of the White and Falozi, or, you know, um, or, Pate, or, or, or Pate, as the Zulu call it, and it was a major defeat. I mean, you've got the lager on top of the Tanjaneni Heights. You've got a commander going down into the Valley of the White and Falozi, more or less where modern-day Olundi is, oh. um, and down they go, they're ambushed, and here is one of the Zulu heroes of all of this, a guy called um, Bongazo, um, who was sent deliberately into the Boer camp as spies and all the rest of it were frequently sent in, and he convinced the Boers that there was a huge amount of cattle down there and not guarded. And he would show them the way down, and down Bongazo went, um, sort of... <laughs> had finally sort of whistled and jumped into the bush off his horse where he's tied, his hands are tied off, and, and they fell into this ambush. And you have this long-running battle right across the white, right, I'm um, Falozi, across, across to where modern um, uh, Olundi is, and right back into the Ntanjaneni Heights, pursued by the Zulu the whole way. The, the guys on horses mainly get away. Um, those on foot, and these are about 60 or so black Port Natal levies. I mean, the whole lot of them get chopped, you know. And at the end of all of this, Andres Pretoria says, okay, we've gone far enough. That's the border no, now. No, no more. That's, no. That, that's it. We're going home now. And, and they, they turn about and go home. And then they begin negotiating again um, about allocation of land and what, you know, if we give you peace, what we'll give you, etc. So it's not, it's not Blood River, you were saying it, but it's actually the Battle of the White and Falozi that kind of determines the territorial stalemate. That's right, because after that, they're willing to negotiate. Um, mm. Dingan is thinking, he, I mean, he creates two more Mgungu Clovos. He builds two more, you know, I mean, say so settling up again. And then he sends his armies north once more into Swaziland. I mean, what really changes the whole game is, is their defeat by the Swazi, um, um, in, in the middle of, of 1839, where, okay, I can't move my kingdom any further north because the Swazi have defeated my army at Lubuya. So now I've got to talk to the Boers. Meanwhile, the British, they come into the picture because their real concern with the trekkers, is that they're going to cause mayhem in the high felt. This is going to cause more movement of people, which might hit the Cape Colony frontiers right. and cause new trouble. So they don't want any more stuff. So, so they've like now got taking over nests. Yeah, this is exactly so. So yeah. they've now got troops in Port Natal who are trying, in fact, even before the Battle of Blood River, to force to persuade the Boers to negotiate with the Zulus not to have any further fighting. So. So the British now are playing their part in helping the Boers negotiate a territorial treaty with Dingan. Dingan promises to pay cattle as a fine and this and this, the rest of it. But to basically say, OK, we're taking this land south of Tugela. The rest is yours, you know. And so we're sort of making this kind of um, Non-aggression pact. Non-aggression pact. <laughs> and, I mean, what... What wrecks the Zulu kingdom is not the Boers at that stage, it's civil war where Mpande, in fact, mm. breaks the rope, flees to Boer territory across the Tugela, and the Boers think, right, this is great. We'll deal now, with him. Now, now we've got this guy with a, with a big army, in fact, we'll deal with him, he'll be our client, so we help him beat Dingan once and for all, 
and we can make further deals with them, which in fact, of course, they do once, once, once Mpande is defeated, um, Dingan. So they take even more territory. And then is, is Mpande at that stage almost a, a puppet king? Because he's been mischaracterized also quite cruelly through history yeah. as having been, I mean, despite being Pechuayo's father, yeah. he doesn't really get much of a, of a, of a, a look in history. Yeah. He doesn't get much attention at all. Yeah. No. Well, he is in many ways the most successful Zulu king from one way of speaking because he dies in his bed, which is <laughs> unlike Unheard most of the others, that. right? Yeah. Um, he kept the kingdom together um, with the Boers. And long reign. And long reign. He kept together under British pressure when, 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 when the British took over Natal, you know. So, I mean, he actually stabilized what was left of the Zulu kingdom north of Tugela, you know. And uh, but, survive. but what about Dingan's end? I mean, that's also yeah. quite sad. Well, yes. I mean, Dingan, after Mpande defeated him, um, he fled, well, to, to the foothills of the Lubombo Mountains, where he again still had part of his army with him. He still hadn't given up. Um, he still set up another royal Akanda usual style. But it's the local people, the Swazi and the Nyawo, um, who decide we, re- we can't stand this guy and we're actually going to do him in. And there's every indication, too, that many of those around Dingan said, listen, we're not sitting in this malarial belt away from everywhere. And they called in the Swazi, said, there's the king, let's get rid of him so we can go home and acknowledge Mpande as king and, and get back to normal. So, But once... As they, as they used to say, once a king goes to the mountains, he is finished. Um, you, you're a Zulu king, you're a warrior king. You lose the war, you have lost it. So after, after being defeated by Mpande, Dingan had really lost it. I mean, I mean, he just simply it's couldn't come like, back. Uh, this, this makes me think of Cato in the desert after Caesar's won the, yeah. the, the, the civil war. Yeah. And yeah, he I decides, mean, well, well, he may as well take his own life. Yeah, well, exactly, because... That there's nothing left. So now, now Pande is obviously there. Dingan is finished. I mean, he can he can try and negotiate and try and consolidate, but it's too much. It's too far. So and he doesn't have any him. authority anymore because no, now the new king is there and the he's got the majority there. of the army. This is right, and and his and his people are deserting him day yeah. day after day. So yeah. And then he he supposedly is is killed somewhere in the Flatini. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well. Yeah, I mean, again, exactly what happens to him is the, the I mean, but, but he is, he is he ambushed. Might have, he might have just slipped away. Yeah. Well, he, he built, a- he built a new little royal, royal homestead, um, Escoleni, um, and Swazi war band took it at night. I mean, there's a lovely element there of his people smelling birds. And of course, all the Swazi feather headdresses in oh, the early wow. dawn. But, but huh. they, they, they attacked him. They killed his favorite dog. They killed, they stabbed him and he died. And then his people said, okay, we're going home now. You know, I, I, I'd like to carry on the story from here, but I mean, your book, you've, you've very much concentrated in that period from 1837 to, to 1840, which is yeah. a very, with a huge amount of detail. Yeah. Because there is still, 
a lot of detail. There's a lot. There's a lot that goes on, and I mean, I've, I've done this in previous books. In fact, um, um, well, my my eight eight Zulu kings, which I did for Jonathan Ball a year or two ago, takes the story through, and also again a Jonathan Ball book in the 1990s, Rope of Sand, also takes the story through. So, so I have sort of followed it in other iterations, <coughs> which is another reason for not taking it any further now. I mean, this is a you know, this is a beginning and end. You've now got Dingaan's dead and Pandey's on the throne. The British are, ab- are about to arrive. They haven't yet. So that's a place to stop. What is it that drew you in the beginning to Zulu history? Very obliquely. Um, when, I, when I was at Cambridge University, my special subject was the Indian mutiny, oh, yeah? which I very much enjoyed researching, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Then I got a job at... University of KwaZulu-Natal in Maritzburg, and you're not in any position to carry on doing Indian history. I mean, where are the archives, etc.? Well, there's some nice links there, yeah. I suppose. There, you there, could, there, you... there, there, there are lots of, lots of in, Indian-Natal links and Absolutely. personnel and Gandhi and all the rest and, of it. Yeah, Absolutely. Slave trade goes and, on and, on. Cane and Oh, yeah, and there's oh. there tons of links. But, but then I thought, well, here is a Zulu thing. I mean, I mean, the Indian mutiny is all about the British consolidating their rule and here is Zululand, the British consolidating their rule and and when it came to the anniversary of the Anglo-Zulu War in 1979, I thought right, this is a time to do it and I and a colleague, Paul Thompson who's now dead unfortunately, we went on we began doing a kind of field trips, I mean, and we thought okay, we know about six British forts in Zululand we ended up by tracking down and 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 finding about a hundred and something of them, and and does this does this actually mean you trudging around oh, I, I've, with I've, old maps and well, with old maps with, with aerial photographs with the with the with the evidence speaking oh, to local people? I mean, so I have actually finding bullet cases. Yeah, and absolutely. Things. I've traipsed every corner of Zululand. You can be assured, you know, <laughs> and and of course all the battlefields as well. And and yeah, so 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 that's what got got one into it, and one. Here was something of enormous interest that just continued growing and has never gone away. And it's a romantic place. I mean, that's oh, a, oh, oh, it is all right. You yeah. can, you can, yeah. if you squint your eyes, you can yeah. almost see armies clashing oh, can, across oh, you rivers. Can, yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's, you know, there are all sorts of moments when um, the, the last king, Kings Velatini, I mean, was dancing in, in the Isibaya at, 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 at the, at the, at the rebuilt and on, on Dini and so on, you know, and they're the white royal cattle and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, yeah, and there are all these continuities. It has you know, a great romance to it, yeah. You know, the, the Zulu have, the Zulu people have been very good at, at re- retaining mm-hmm. a, a great depth of, of oh, knowledge about their own so, history, yeah, where yeah. there are many mm-hmm. other Nations and yeah. cultures and yeah. people all over the world who yeah. have far more scant information about weren't as good at recording yeah. this stuff, yeah. whether orally or, or else, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, in other ways. Yeah. But, you know, I, I found it disappointing. I mean, when, when I used to lecture on Zulu history at the University of Natal, this is before I went off to Canada for a number of years, um, I'd be lecturing mainly to Zulu students, Zulu history. And what did they know about it? Like nothing, it seems. So maybe their grandfathers might remember it, but it seems to have, you know, from a younger generation, it's, well, I suppose less so if you're further up in Zululand itself, but, but if you've got a more urban kind of, you know, um, it's, it's actually as foreign as the Wars of the Roses, quite honestly, you know. 
And, and that is sad, but I do think there are still these pockets of, of extraordinary knowledge and, and, and wisdom. And, and a sense of Zulu nationhood. Right. Which you have, which is very, very strong. I mean, you know, and, and that doesn't go away. And, and that's part of it. And I mean, even if it's based on myth and half-remembered history, there's an awareness there, which is certainly, you know, very viable today. And do you think that this is all being taken a lot more seriously in the South Africa of you know, post-1994 South Africa, where oh, uh, yeah. I think people before, mm. you know, I, my, my great, the despair I feel when I hear how few people are actually studying our history yeah. is something yeah. that's entirely oh, a separate yeah. point. Yeah. But that, these sorts of books that yeah. you've been working on yeah. so tirelessly, yeah. these are now yeah. being taken seriously, yeah. that they're being put into the historical yeah. record, that the historical record is being updated all yeah. the time. Yeah. And that there is a degree of seriousness about it. It is, but the sad thing is, when one talks to any publishers, the number of people reading history books. I mean, I mean, I mean, Jonathan Ball himself, I used to know well. I mean, used to bewail the fact, you know, that he would be able to sell X number of history books thirty years ago, and this is absolutely, you know, reduced so considerably nowadays. Well, don't yeah. get me started. When I walk into a bookshop and I see that most of the books are on cooking or oh, yeah, well. or, or, or romance novels, I, yeah. I just want to scream and yeah, run out. No, well, that's that's <laughs> it. Well, we, we we know it's changed, which of course. I'm just thinking of what we're doing now, at least is perhaps accessible to people who wouldn't read, at least. You know, it's, it's finding another audience. You know? Are there, are there still areas that deserve exploration in, in particular Zululand and, yeah. you know, are there, are there things that we haven't yet uncovered? Are there perhaps places that we can still look and, and people that we could still talk to? Yeah. You know, I think more recent hist- Zulu history is what's been less covered, in fact. I mean, you know, it's sort of things tend to stop with the Anglo-Zulu War. Mm-hmm. Um, and the later history of Zululand, the appalling civil war of, of the, of the early, of, of the 1880s, which Jeff Guy and other people did so much. Um, their involvement in the, in the, in the Boer War, for example, which I've covered a lot more can be done on that. But just the, the history of Zululand in a period under, the Union of South Africa and then the Republic, you know, um, it's it's not been particularly well covered at all. And we don't and have, unfortunately, I mean, they've, they've attempted to put up a kind of Zulu version of the Blood River Memorial. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know that it's it's doing extremely well. I don't. I, I wish people were more interested, but yeah. we can't force them to be. No, no, one, 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 one can't. And and in many ways, I mean, the the wagon lager and all the rest of it on the other side still has this iconic value. I mean, a long cultural sort of embeddedness, you know, which which the new Zulu memorial across the river really doesn't quite have the same kind of resonance. But and even I, I have to say, even among you know Afrikaans speaking people mm-hmm. who know tangentially about the stuff that they yeah. were forced to study yeah. at school. But there's no real attachment and love to it that there might have been before. It was passionate before. My oh, great-grandfather no. oh, was yeah. Gustav Preller. Oh, really? Who oh, wrote, yeah. wrote the, the history of Mzilikazi. Yeah, 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 of course. Um, yeah, and so. nobody knows that name No, no, anymore. no, no, sure, no. You know, Lobengula. No. Yeah, no. And, you know, you're talking about history in, in, in the shops. It tends to be more recent history, more contemporary history or political history. This, this background history that framed everything we deal with is it's arcane now arcane yes that's the word. <laughs> well you yeah. may be uh yeah. you may be writing arcane yeah. books but i yeah. thank god for it um yeah. this is good stuff yeah. and i can't tell you i mean the descriptions here of brightly colored silk dresses dainty little hats and white shoes stockings and gloves 
And the, I mean, this is just you talking about the trekkers, what they looked like. Yeah. I, mean, this, I love this because yeah. to me, you're allowing us to see, yeah. the, the, to imagine yeah. the, the whole picture. Yeah. Not just the, this is how many people are on this side, yeah. this, is how, this is where it took place, there's a yeah. diagram. We're actually getting to see the faces and hear the, the voices of these people. Well, well, I try to. And I mean, this, this is one thing of getting down to the original sources or to the, you know, the diaries and memoirs that are written or looking at the recorded Zulu oral, oral testimony. You do get the voices, in fact, you know, and, and that to me is such a vital part of it. Well, well done. Uh, really, I can't thank you enough for coming to see us this morning. Oh, well, thank you. I've really and for writing the book. Yeah. Thank you, John. Yeah. Thank, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Gareth. Thank you. Cliffcentral.com.